Welcome back once again to our midweek Bible study. Uh, this week, we're going to consider a profound topic. What is a worthy life? What's a worthy life? Leon Cass recently authored a book on the subject, and he says, our youth still harbor desires for a worthy life, but they're increasingly confused about what a worthy life might look like and about how they might be able to live one. This lack of cultural and moral confidence about what makes a life worth living is perhaps the deepest curse of living in our interesting time, end quote. I think Cass is right that there is no consensus today about what constitutes a worthy life, but thankfully, God's people find clear instruction in God's word showing us the marks of a worthy life. Listen into what Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 27 to 2, 4. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We're going to explore this passage under four headings. They're found in the notes outline if you're using them. God teaches us that a worthy life is marked by gospel unity, Christian suffering, relational harmony, and relational humility. You'll recall that Paul is in chains, probably in Rome, but he's personally convinced that he's going to be acquitted at his upcoming trial. And that, you see, will open up the possibility of him coming to see the Philippians again. And that's where we left off in chapter 1, verse 26 last week. But whether Paul comes to see the Philippians again, as he fully expects to, or perhaps is absent from any in-person contact with them, he exhorts them in either case only to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you have an ESV Bible, you'll see in the footnote that the Greek can also be translated here, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you'll remember perhaps that the city of Philippi was proud to be a Roman colony, and that brought its inhabitants the great privilege of Roman citizenship. But Paul is saying, rather than looking to Caesar and your Roman citizenship to guide you in what a worthy life is, you should look to the gospel of Christ and your citizenship in heaven to guide you in a worthy life, right? Fulfill your responsibilities as those whose citizenship is ultimately in heaven. He'll say later in chapter 3, verse 20. So the sense is 
Hey, what really matters is that you behave as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And if the Philippians live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether Paul gets to see them in person, as he expects, or not, perhaps, he'll still hear of them that they're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A worthy life is marked by unity in the gospel. And you notice here a worthy life is not something that we just pursue individually, but corporately with others in Christ. We stand firm together in one spirit, possibly a common human spirit, a kind of esprit de corps kind of thing, but much more likely, I think, the unifying Holy Spirit, since Paul teaches elsewhere that the Holy Spirit is key to church unity. And with one mind or even one soul, it could be translated, we strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, unity does not necessarily mean uniformity, right? A kind of a Mr. Spock, Vulcan, mind meld kind of thing. No, but it does mean that we have unity or agreement in the essentials of the gospel, which is mentioned twice, you'll notice, in verse 27, the gospel. So it's a powerful picture. If the Philippian believers will stand firm as one, in one spirit, and with one mind, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, then they're not going to be frightened in anything by their opponents. And that lack of fear on the part of the Philippian Christians will be a clear sign a proof, an omen, you could even say, to their opponents of their ultimate destruction, but of the believer's salvation from God. And remember, these opponents that we're talking about here are not Paul's rivals in Rome, who were mentioned earlier, apparently Christian brothers who were preaching the gospel from imperfect motives. No, these opponents here are apparently unbelievers in Philippi, who are headed to destruction unless they repent. Perhaps they're even the same pagans who had Paul and Silas beaten and imprisoned when they founded the church in Philippi back in Acts 16, you remember. But whoever the opponents are exactly here, they are going to see the Philippian church's courage and unity as something that marks them as those who are being saved from destruction by God. So in some supernatural way, when the church is united in the gospel and not frightened by opponents, unbelievers may see their true spiritual state as those who are headed to destruction unless they turn. And believers may see their true spiritual state as those headed to salvation, which is from God. Gospel unity is a powerful force, and so is, secondly, Christian suffering. You see, not only is the Philippians salvation from God, but so is their suffering. Verse 29 said, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There are two gifts in this verse, you'll see, but the second one may catch us off guard. It was granted or given to the Philippian believers, one, to believe in Christ, and two, to suffer for Christ's sake. And you remember how Jesus himself said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that helps explain why in Acts 5.41, after being beaten by the Sanhedrin, the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer 
dishonor for the name of Jesus. It's a gracious gift to believe in Jesus, and it's a gracious gift to suffer for Jesus' sake. It's not just that suffering is inevitable and we have to resign ourselves to it. No, rather suffering for the sake of Christ is a gift granted to God's people. We also see in verse 30 that Paul and the Philippians had solidarity in their suffering. Right, The Philippians were engaged in the same conflict that they saw Paul had, probably back when he founded the church at Philippi in Acts 16, and that they now hear that Paul still has, right? probably in his imprisonment in Rome. So they knew what Paul had gone through, they knew what he was going through now, and both Paul and the Philippians were, were in this same conflict. They were suffering opposition from hostile unbelievers. For Paul, for the Philippians, for believers today, especially in some countries, suffering for Christ precedes glorification in Christ. Now, if you hear these words of God that we've been talking about, primarily with guilt, that your experience does not include much Christian suffering, or if you hear these words of God with fear that your future experience may include more Christian suffering, I'd encourage you to consider focusing less on the suffering or its absence and focusing more on ways in which you can live fully for the sake of Christ, as it says. Come what may, right? Whatever level of suffering may come. A worthy life is marked by gospel unity and a willingness to suffer for Jesus' sake. A worthy life is also marked by relational harmony, which we see in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, which there is plenty of for Christians, if there's any comfort from love, lots of that for believers, if there's any participation in the Spirit, yes, every follower of Jesus participates in the Spirit. If there's any affection and sympathy, and there is lots of affection and sympathy between Paul and the Philippians, then Paul calls him to complete his joy by four actions. Now, Paul's already rejoicing. While in chains, mind you, he's already rejoicing. We've read that several times in chapter 1. And he's not focused on himself and woe is me. He's focused outward on others. Right? So Paul says essentially, hey, Philippians, if all that we share in Christ means anything, and of course it does, fill my joy to the full by doing these four things. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Right? Christians experience relational harmony through agreement in the truth, being of the same mindset regarding the gospel of Christ, for which we strive side by side. Secondly, make my joy complete by having the same love. Right Now, it's not that Christians all love the same foods or TV shows or music or something, but we experience relational harmony through our common love of God and of each other within the family of God. Thirdly, will you please complete my joy, Paul says, by being in full accord. Literally being like-souled or having common affections, a, a common commitment that God's will be done. And fourthly, complete my joy, Paul says, by being of one mind. Now, if we didn't get it the first two times, the third time is the charm here. Being of one mind regarding the essentials, right? Doesn't mean we all share the same opinions but that we are of one mind, for instance, 
maybe at our church regarding the dozen points in our doctrinal statement, something like that. When we have the same mind and love and affections and soul, then we experience relational harmony, whether it's at Philippi in the first century or here at Parkside Green in the 21st century. Lastly, a worthy life is marked by relational humility, which we see in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Each one of you Philippians, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Don't, Don't seek vain or empty glory. That's totally out of keeping with your heavenly citizenship. Now, humility would have stood out in the Greco-Roman world, which was marked by proud boasting and even a boasting contest, kind of one-upmanship sort of thing. And it continues, humility continues to be crucial for Jesus' followers today. I mean, when I have an accurate, humble estimate of myself, I really see where I fit into the big picture of God's kingdom, I'm much more likely to think of others and their needs as more important than my own. God's word here tells me to take that same level of natural concern that I have for myself and apply it to others. We can live in relational humility when we live with others' needs as more important than our own. It doesn't mean that they're better than us, we're not comparing that way, but it means that we put their needs first and care for them even as we care for ourselves. I mean, that's what Jesus did for us. Put us first. Oh man, right? I am so quick to look out for my own interests, whereas my wife Sue is actually so quick to look out for the interests of others. I think of back to a few years ago, I tried to talk Sue into this major epic vacation, and instead she talked me down to a much more modest vacation and actually wanted us to give the difference in the cost between the two to another family in the church so they could have a nice vacation. And we did it. I mean, it was the right thing to do, you know, and we had a good time. And as we were waiting in the airport for our return flight from our modest vacation, I got set up, uh, had a, I think it was a mango smoothie in one hand and the USA Today in the other hand, and I made sure I got a chair with no one on either side of me, and I'm just settling in, and Sue says, I think I'm going to go find someone and help them. I'm like, in an airport terminal? <laughs> and sure enough, uh, a few hundred yards down the terminal, uh, she came across a mom who was just trying to corral uh, several little children. It was kind of overwhelming for her. Sue offered help. Uh, the lady took it, and she helped her, I don't know, it was for 15 or 20 minutes. And my mango smoothie wasn't tasting quite so great, and I wasn't enjoying my paper quite so much. Because, again, I was looking out for me which I do very well, and Sue was looking out for others, which she does very well. These verses continue to convict me, and uh, maybe there's something that has spoken to you in this passage as well. If not, consider these four possible applications in closing. Number one, pursue gospel unity, right? Well, we're going to have differences on other matters. There's diversity in the body of Christ We must be of one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So number one, pursue gospel unity. Number two, 
Don't be frightened by opponents of the gospel, right? As Paul says elsewhere, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, unrepentant unbelievers are ultimately going to be destroyed, whereas repentant believers will ultimately be saved. So don't be frightened by opponents of the gospel. Number three, seek relational harmony through agreement on the main things and plain things, right? Through our our shared love of God and our shared love of each other within the family of God, seek relational harmony within the body of Christ. And fourth and finally, live in relational humility, lowliness of mind. How do we do that? Well, negatively, try to avoid rivalry or conceit, right? Don't, Don't be a spiritual cannibal devouring brothers and sisters in your social interactions. Positively, be other-centered, right? Valuing others, looking out for others' interests, like Sue does. Live in relational humility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for inspiring this portion of Scripture and for preserving it down through the centuries, and now for sending your Spirit to help us understand it. We want to live in response to what you have spoken to us in your word. So we ask for your help in pursuing gospel unity. Give us one mind, we pray, to to strive side by side for the gospel. And We know that at times we can be intimidated by those who oppose the gospel. So we pray for a special measure of courage, not to be frightened by those who oppose you and your ways. And Father, we long to be just totally done with relational friction and instead to enjoy relational harmony the way it was back in the Garden of Eden at first, the the way it's going to be eternally in the new heavens and the new earth. As we seek then for your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, we ask you to grant us agreement in the essentials of the faith. Give us, we pray, an ever-deepening love for you and an ever-deepening love for each other. And for those of us who struggle with pride, we pray for you to grant us a greater measure of humility to look not only to our own interests, but also to look to the interests of others. So have your way, Father, in making us more like your Son, Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen.